John chapter 1, let's pray and we'll dive into our message today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for um, just your heart for us. We thank you for the gift of your son that we celebrate um, every day, but uh, at a special time this year. And Lord, I pray as, as we get into your word right now that it would go forth in power and through the ministry of your spirit that, that Lord, you would have your way today in our hearts, in our lives, um, in our families. And um, Lord, I just want to give a special prayer this morning for um, Peter John Corson. God, we ask that you would touch him and heal him. And and Lord, the whole Corson family, that you would just um, cover them right now with your grace. And um, we love you. We, we just know, Lord, that you love us so much. So we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week two of our Christmas series that this year we entitled Christmas Lights. Um, Just out of curiosity, how many of you put Christmas lights up on your house? Um, Okay, quite a few of you. Um, That's great. Um, I mentioned last week how I like Christmas lights. And, and, um, you know, every year people all over the country really, really get into the whole Christmas light um, show. And some of them put on quite Quite a show at their house. In fact, there's a financial news site called 24/7 Wall Street, and they compiled a list of the best neighborhoods for Christmas lights all over the country. And um, the winner in Illinois was a landscaper by the name of Brian Larson, who lives in suburban Elburn, which is about 45 minutes west of Chicago. And every single year, this guy puts on a Christmas light display called the Larson Light Show. And this year's display featured, get this, over one million Christmas lights. Can you imagine that? A million Christmas lights. And they were um, all programmed to dozens of holiday songs. And um, rather than have you imagine this, I don't usually do this, I'm actually gonna give you a taste of what is happening at his house. So they're gonna put this on the screen for you to look at. Is that crazy or what? Now, people come from all over to see his light show, and the overwhelming response is always this, great show, and I'm so glad I'm not your neighbor. you know, it's interesting that uh, ABC actually does a contest. Maybe you know this. Might, it might be incentive for you next year to do some Christmas lights. Probably not. But they do a, a, a contest where best Christmas lights all over the country, and the prize is $50,000. The winner this year went to a mill owner in Ohio. He's the owner of the mill, uh, Clifton Mill. And get this, his display featured over 4 million Christmas lights. And we have a picture of it for you. A couple pictures. Um, This hard to see in here, but there's actually a stream running right be through, and his whole property is covered in Christmas lights. So, so some people really, really, really get into the whole Christmas light thing, and um, you know, we began, because you know, God also got into Christmas lights. We began last week looking at the strand of Christmas lights that God displayed in the Old Testament in the form of prophecies, prophecies that were given concerning the birth, death, 
death and resurrection of Jesus. There were over 300 such prophecies. And just like a strand of Christmas lights, every single one of them, just like in a strand of Christmas lights, if one bulb goes out, it ruins the whole thing. Well, so too with all of these prophecies, every single one of them had to be fulfilled and they were fulfilled in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it came to the birth of Jesus, there was also light involved. We learn from Matthew's gospel how the wise men were guided by a light, a star that led them 1,500 miles from Persia to the little city of Bethlehem. In Luke's gospel, we have the account of the angelic host that appeared to the shepherds who were watching the sheep in the field outside of Bethlehem. And suddenly there was one angel lighting up the sky and then a whole heavenly host that lit up the sky. But but what's really, really interesting is when we come to the actual birth of Christ, the light was just a flicker. Jesus born in a stable, a cave really. There was probably a torch, maybe some type of a form of first century lantern. But if you think about it, the light... Jesus being born, you know, we see the pictures, the cars, there's always the light shining in, you know, the moonlight or whatever. It probably wasn't like that. But, but the light, God's light that, that had been prophesied coming into the world was only seen by a few shepherds that came there to the cave. Now, I asked you to turn to the Gospel of John because oftentimes at Christmas, we tend to focus on Luke's account of the Christmas story because it's the most detailed. Or sometimes we might read Matthew's account um, that gives us uh, insight into the visit from the wise men. But John's version, though brief, is maybe the most unique. We could say that it's Christmas from heaven's point of view. Let's read beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Apostle John goes all the way back to the beginning, really before the beginning, before there was man, before there was time, He goes back to God. He goes back to the scene in heaven. And he tells us, in the beginning was the word. And that that phrase, the word, in the Greek, it's the logos. And and the Greeks, they talked much about the logos. It was, according to Greek philosophy, everything preexisted in a thought. The Greeks kind of looked at the logos as kind of an abstract thing. That everything just kind of, it begins with a thought and and everything that comes into being kind of begins that way. In fact, we could think about it using an analogy of this this pulpit, this podium here. Um, This podium began with a thought. 
Some craftsman, somebody you know, that deals with metal, this is metal by the way, that, that thought, you know what, I could be really, really great to move from wood to, to having a metal podium and kind of make it a little bit more streamlined and maybe a little bit more modern. And, and, and so this whole thing began with a thought. It was probably drawn on a piece of paper and then it was you know, put together. And this is how the Greeks thought that everything, before everything exists, it pre-existed in a thought. They looked at it in an abstract way, but the, the Jewish teachers made it more personal because they realized that behind every thought, there has to be a thinker, and the thinker is God. He's the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, and he was in the beginning with God. And if you look down at verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us here, he gives us insight into the the Christmas story, the heavenly scene, that first of all, Jesus was eternal. That he was the second person of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one. Now, oftentimes, that confuses us because we think one plus one plus one equals three, but we need to think of it in this way. One times one times one equals one. Three persons, yet one God, and Jesus is the eternal God. And Jesus stepped out of heaven, and he stepped into our darkness. It was S.D. Gordon who put it this way, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that men can understand. And the miracle of Christmas is this, that the eternal God stepped into the human world as a human himself. And because of his love for man who was lost in his sin, he lowered himself and became one of us. Now John also tells us here that Jesus is the creator. Look at verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus was the creator of time and space and everything that exists in our world today. All of the animals, all of the fish, all of the mountains, all of the solar systems and the galaxies. He spoke them into existence. But then he goes one step further, John does, and tells us that Jesus is also the author of all spiritual life as well. Look at verse 4. He says, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now the ancient Greeks, uh, the word translated life is the word zoe. And it's interesting because this means the principle of life, not the bios. In other words, it's, it's speaking of something greater than just biological life. Zoe focuses on the theological meaning rather than the biological meaning. Zoe is used to designate the life that God gives to the unbelieving sinner, a vital spiritual dynamic that transforms his inner being and then as a result, his outward behavior. This is what it means, what, what, the word that he's using here when he says that in him was life, Zoe, and the life, this, this spiritual dynamic was the light of men. 
So in verse 4, John is giving us really the reason why Jesus came into the world that it was to give spiritual life. You see, the Bible teaches us that man, all of us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The soul that sins would surely die. That, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it caused a separation, a death took place in their relationship with God. That they were separated from God. Living in that place of separation. That was the plight of all mankind. And Jesus came to bridge the gap, to rescue us, to bring us back to life. But I want you to notice the sad note in verse 5. And it says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And when you think about the scene that first Christmas morning in Bethlehem, that was very, very true. You see, Bethlehem kind of ignored the light. The shepherds who came to see Jesus, the Luke's gospel tells us that after they saw him, that they went out. It says, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying that was told to them by the angel. Remember what the angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy that there is born to you this day in the city of Bethlehem a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, and they went and told, hey, every, the Savior's here, the Messiah. Messiah is here, but no one paid much attention to them. Partly because shepherds in that society were kind of the lowest of the classes. They were the lowest on the totem pole, if you would. They were guys that weren't readily trusted, and so nobody paid much attention to them. On that very first Christmas morning there in Bethlehem, it was business as usual. And people are like, yeah, I don't have any time for that. What are these crazy shepherds in some store? I don't have time for that. But isn't that the way it is in our day and age as well? A lot of people don't have time for it. There was one lady who was at the mall doing some last-minute Christmas shopping a couple days before Christmas. And she had with her her four-year-old son who she lost you ever had that happen? You lose your son. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I've tried to lose my son several times. But uh, she lost her son. And, and so she backtracks and makes her way back to you know, a place and, and she sees him. And he's standing in front of a table where there's a nativity, a big nativity set. And she says, there you are. And he says to his mom, he says, mom, look, look, it's the baby Jesus. And his mom responds, I don't have time for that. I got to get home and get ready for Christmas. That's the sentiment I think of a lot of people. They lose sight of what this is all about. That Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. I don't have time for that. I'm, I got to get ready for Christmas. You know, we're reminded that during this time of the year, all the wonderful carols, and I love the places where, where the, the, they actually play the carols like we sang today that actually talk about Jesus and not Jingle Bells and Santa Claus and all of that. But unfortunately, those songs often get drowned out by other sounds at this time of the year, the sounds of crashing shopping carts. The sounds of honking horns, the sounds of, of, of people yelling and screaming, parents at kids and people at one another. I saw that first. It's mine. And far too often, those are the prominent sounds of the season. Why is that? One word, pressure. This season brings about a lot of pressure, doesn't it? 
There's parties and purchases and packages and presents. And all of that amounts to a great deal of pressure. But I think our Heavenly Father would want us to know and would say to us today and remind us that, hey, this season is all about how I made a way for you to experience my pleasure and the, way, the reason why you can experience my pleasure is because the pressure was on my son, that he took it for you, that he went to the cross for you, that he took the pressure, all the weight of the sin of the world upon himself. Jesus came to make a way for sinners to be made right with God. And please, don't forget that. You know, I always like to... During this season, you know, you go somewhere and go to Starbucks or wherever and, and they'll say, you know, what do they say to you after the, when they give you your drink? Happy holidays. And I always respond, Merry Christmas. Because that's what this is about. It's not happy holidays. It's, it's Christmas. So Bethlehem ignored the light, like some do today. Herod, the king, actually tried to kill the light. He sent soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the babies that were two years old and and younger because he thought, hey, there's a king that's going to be born that's going to take my throne. The shepherds seem to have forgot about the light because not much is heard, not much is said, not much is written about this baby that was born for 30 years. For 30 years, the light lived in obscurity in a little tiny village called Nazareth. Now you need to understand, Nazareth was, kind of, was the type of town, it was a little town that you passed through on your way to somewhere else. Kind of like Rainbow or Beaumont, you know? Have any of you ever stopped in Rainbow, you know, before? Okay, a couple of you. Anybody ever stop in Beaumont for any reason than to get gas, you know? Yeah, the hands go down. No, I had to get gas there, you know. That's what Nazareth was like. It was like one of those places that you just sort of pass through. And this is where Jesus spends 30 years of his life. But after 30 years, the light steps out of obscurity and begins to shine for all men to see. And if you want to turn over to the eighth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus there makes a radical statement It happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day celebration that the Jewish people would come from all over the land to Jerusalem, and it was to commemorate and to celebrate the 40 years that God had led them through the wilderness with Moses. And so they come, and as a way of, of remembering and celebrating, commemorating they bring tents. And so it's kind of a big giant camp out that they have. But every single evening, the priest would go into the temple, into the holy place of the temple, that first compartment, and they would light the giant candelabras, the, the, the menorahs there in the temple. And it symbolized, the lighting of those symbolized how God had led his people through the wilderness by, at night by a pillar of fire. That it was a sign of God's presence with them. 
And so Jesus is standing in the courtyard one day during this eight-day celebration, and people are around, and religious leaders are there, and he says this in verse 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And what Jesus was doing in that moment was boldly proclaiming for all to hear that the light that led you through the wilderness is here, it's me. And they understood what he was saying because if you read further, the religious leaders say this, they say to him, you are testifying of yourself and your testimony isn't true. That wasn't you, what are you talking about? But remember what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7:14, a verse we hear often during this time of the year. Isaiah said, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." In church, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And this is what Jesus was proclaiming. Hey, the light that led you through the wilderness, that pillar of fire, was me, and I'm here. I am the light of the world. The Logos took on flesh and blood. The light came to shine in our darkness. Let's consider for a moment what light does. One of the things that light does is it illuminates you ever get dressed in the dark? You know, you don't want to you don't want to uh, wake up your spouse and so you're going to the closet and you're pulling things out and you're putting them on and and you're thinking like you've got this great outfit and then you walk out into the light and you discover you've got plaids with stripes and you know it's just not happening or you put on two different shoes or you put on different colored socks. That's what the light does. It exposes us and you're like thinking, "Wow, this is a disaster." Light has a way of exposing our flaws. Things are brought into the light and you see them for what they are. It's what x-rays do. You, know, you go to the doctor, hey, I'm feeling fine. And okay, well, hey, let's do an x-ray. Let's do a checkup. And suddenly that x-ray, that light, it shines through. It radiates in your body and, and there's, you see there's a problem. Light exposes things. It's one of the reasons why I kind of have a problem with you know, high-end restaurants because in high-end restaurants, it's always dark. Now, they say it's for ambience, but I'm always thinking, like, what are they trying to hide here, you know? What don't they want me to see? Light has a way of exposing things, but it also has a way of, of illuminating things in a good way. I mean, what do they do? What do jewelers do when they have a great diamond or a gem, they take that diamond, they put it on a piece of black velvet, and they shine a light on it, and the light against that dark surface radiates the brilliance of that gem, that diamond. Well, this is what God was doing. God took the light, the gem, the jewel of his son, and he placed him in our dark world. And Jesus came into our dark world to illuminate for us the heart of God, that God loved mankind, that God's heart was one of compassion for man and his struggle. 
So when Jesus would see the multitude and his disciples would be like, let's get rid of them. Let's get away from them. We want some time by ourselves. And it says that Jesus would look at them and his heart would break with compassion because he would see them as being like sheep without a shepherd. That's what they need. They need somebody to love them and lead them. And so Jesus came to illuminate for us the heart of God. That God had not given up on man. That God wasn't removed from man. That God's heart broke as he looked at man and his struggle with sin. And it broke so much that God was going to send his son. He was going to make a way for man to be rescued. Jesus came to illuminate the heart of God. But also the plan of God. To save lost man. And that plan would require God, the Father, to give his only beloved son. There was a woman by the name of Nancy Jones, and her and her family were traveling on Christmas Eve to her parents, and they decided to stop at a diner to get some lunch. They had with them their two-year-old son, Eric, and as they were at the diner, Eric became enamored with a a man that was sitting at the counter by himself. Now, he was a man who looked kind of like a homeless guy. He had on a real raggedy jacket. It was real greasy. His uh, hair was uncombed and kind of unkept, and he was was unshaven, and, and, um, and he was barely sober. But he was loudly making faces at little Eric, and Eric was loving every single minute of it. He kept laughing. Nancy was kind of becoming a little embarrassed, and so she tried to take and and turn her her son's high chair away from the man to, you know, distract him and started trying to give him food, but but it was no use. The man had baited Eric into a uh, friendly game of peekaboo, and so Eric and the old man were creating this great nuisance in their little game of peekaboo, and so Eric's parents decided, man, it's it's time to go. It's time to get out of here, and so her husband rose to pay the check and she said um, to he said to his wife you know take Eric and go wait for me outside but the problem was for Nancy to get outside she was going to have to walk past the old man and as she was she was just praying that she actually prayed Lord let me out of here before he speaks to me or speaks to Eric and as she was leaving Eric though couldn't get his eyes off of his new friend And right before, when she was walking past, the man, Eric, stretches out his arms. You know, he's reaching for his man. And when Nancy's eyes met the eyes of the old man, the old man said to her, ma'am, can I hold your son? She didn't even get an answer. Eric propels himself out of her arms and into the arms of this man and lays his head on this ragged shoulder of this man and the man's eyes closed and tears began to run down his cheek and with his aged ragged and dirty hands he cradled Eric gently and stroked his back and after a moment he opened up his eyes and he looked squarely into the eyes of Nancy and said you take care of this boy and she responded I will 
And then he said to her, thank you so much. You've given me my Christmas presents. Now, I love that story because I think all of us, especially those of you who are parents or grandparents, you can experience the the tension, if we're honest, in that story and what you would you know, feel like if here's a stranger who, you know, looks dirty, looks, you know, seems like he's not quite sober, who wants to hold your baby. I know for me, my first response with my grandson wouldn't be like, here, take him, you know, kind of a thing. I think all of us can, can understand and relate to the tension that was going on in Nancy's heart. But I want you to think about that story for a minute. As you picture little Eric or your son or daughter or your grandson or daughter in the arms of that dirty, smelly man and then think about what God did for us. That he gave his son born as a little tiny baby and he handed him to us but we didn't cradle his son and we didn't caress his son but mankind rejected his son and ended up killing his son and yet God knew all along that's exactly what we would do because that was the plan. That was the plan. It was the only way that man lost in his sin could be restored and forgiven and made new was there had to be a sinless one who could come and pay the price for the sin of all of humanity. And so God gave of his only beloved son willingly and freely and through the gift of his son, God was able to offer another gift to you and I, eternal life to anyone who would believe. To everyone who would put their trust in the finished work of Christ, which he accomplished on the cross for us. Jesus came to illuminate the heart of God, the plan of God, and the way to God, that it would involve his own sacrifice. So light illuminates. Another thing that light does is it pierces the darkness. A little girl who was camping described what her dad was doing as as, uh, he walked toward them with a flashlight one night when they were camping. She said to her brothers and sisters, look, 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 daddy is poking holes in the darkness. That's a good description of what light does. It pokes holes in the darkness. It pierces the darkness. And there was plenty of darkness when Jesus arrived on the scene. There was the darkness of religion, the artificial light that left man longing for intimacy with God and longing for a way to be made right with God because the religion of the Jews, like so many religions today, primarily focused on cleaning, out, cleaning up the outward appearance, cleaning up the, the outward man, but the problem was when you do that, when you focus on the outside, is that the inside is still dark and dirty, And Jesus came and he pierced a hole in the darkness of religion by by making it very, very clear that the problem is a heart problem. That's where it starts. The problem is in the heart. Jesus 
pierced through the darkness of man's moral depravity. He shined a light on that area as well. You see, Jesus revealed that sin isn't just about our outward actions, but it's our inward attitudes. He would say, you know, the law said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, if anyone looks on a woman and lusts after her sexually, he's committed adultery already in his heart. Jesus was saying, hey, the heart of the problem is a heart problem. Now, here's what's interesting about darkness. Darkness may be more pervasive, but light is more powerful. We turn on lights. We don't turn on the darks. If a room is too bright, no, the only way for darkness to prevail is the light has to be turned off. Now, Satan in Scripture is referred to as the prince of darkness. But Jesus came, the light of the world came into our world, into our darkness, and he conquered Satan on the cross. And there is no darkness in your life or my life that he can't conquer. There's no darkness in this world that he cannot overcome. You know, a little boy was heard his Sunday school teacher talking about how Jesus comes and he shines as a light in the darkness. And he says, man, I hope that, I wish he would come and shine at my house because there's a lot of darkness there. And maybe you feel that way. But you know what? When you allow Jesus into your home, when you allow Jesus into your heart, he comes and he shines in the darkness. At first, it's not pleasant. Because he reveals what needs to change. He reveals what's broken. But what's really awesome is he can also brighten up that home and make it a place where his love is predominant. So light illuminates. It pierces the darkness. But here's what's interesting. People don't like it oftentimes when the light pierces their darkness. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leader there by the name of Nicodemus. And he says that, you know, Nicodemus comes and says, hey, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because of the things that you do. And Jesus, knowing what was really going on in his heart, he looks at him and he says, you must be born again or you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, he's like, born again, what does that mean? I'm old, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus makes it really clear, he says, no, no, you need to understand, you've had a physical birth, but you need to have a spiritual birth. See, spiritually, you're not alive. You're a religious leader, you're the teacher of Israel, but spiritually, you're dead. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, how does that happen? And Jesus shares the first gospel message In John chapter three, verse 16, it was Jesus who said, this is how, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I love this. 
God didn't send Jesus to come as the perfect person to go, look, I did it, how come you can't? No, he didn't come to condemn us. But he came so that we might be saved. But here's what's interesting. Jesus went on to say, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. See, there's really only two responses to the light. You either receive the light or you reject the light. Yeah, the light comes in and it exposes the darkness. The light comes in and it reveals what is wrong. It shines on the darkness of your heart and reveals the hypocrisy that is there. It reveals what is out of order. It reveals what is a mess. It reveals the evil thoughts. It reveals the brokenness. But then Jesus said, I want you to know I paid the price for all of that. I went to the cross and I took the pain and I took the punishment and I took the shame and I took the weight. I bore the pressure of all of that so that you could experience the pleasure of your sins being forgiven and your heart being made new and your life being transformed and you coming into a relationship with my Father. His light can chase away the darkness. You see, light illuminates, it it pierces the darkness, and light brings warmth. In fact, did you know that one small candle properly reflected can raise the temperature of an igloo from below freezing to over 45 degrees Fahrenheit? I just thought you'd like to know that little tidbit there. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But think about it, light brings warmth. Oftentimes, these lights shining on the stage, they're, they're bright, and they're hot. They bring warmth. I start sweating because of the light. That's what light does. And Jesus, the light of the world, can bring the warmth and comfort to the darkest of hearts. When we open our hearts to him, there's the warmth of coming into relationship with God, that we can know God, that we can understand that in God, that we have our purpose and knowing that you belong. In fact, if you look back at that verse again in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but get this, but have, possess the light of life. The light of life, purpose and meaning, it comes through Jesus. There's a bar in Florida known as Scotty's Pub. And outside of Scotty's Pub, there's a huge sign that reads, free beer tomorrow. Now understand, I'm not an advocate of visiting bars, but I appreciate the clever advertising campaign that this pub has. Because you see, for over a decade, the sign has been hanging in front of Scotty's Pub and not a single ounce of free beer has ever been poured because it's always tomorrow, right? Free anything tomorrow is a hollow promise. That's why Jesus doesn't just promise a better life tomorrow. 
He promises a better life now. And knowing him, I'm the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, are you ready to come out of the darkness? To receive the light of Jesus Christ, the eternal God who became man, to give you life. And I encourage you to open up your heart to him today. Two more quick things. We're not just to see the light, know the light, and walk in the light, but we need to understand that walking in the light connects you and I to God, but also to each other. John put it this way in his epistle. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. That's what walking with Jesus does. It connects us with one another. There's a unity, there's a brotherhood, there's a sisterhood because we realize we're all sinners who needed a savior and we've all been forgiven and made clean because of what Jesus did. So we walk in the light, but lastly, the Lord also wants us to be those who share the light, to not hold this in, to not, to not take the lamp and, and cover it up. But he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, you let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, that they see what God has done in you and they glorify him. They, they, they turn to him. They're drawn to him. Jesus, the light of the world, came into our darkness to set us free. That's what we celebrate. The freedom, the joy, the life that we have because Jesus gave his. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your indescribable gift. We thank you, Lord, for just the, the way that you so willingly sacrificed to make a way for us to be able to know you. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know you. Anybody here today that, that is just ready and willing to invite you into their darkness to expose the things that they already know are wrong, that need fixed, that are a mess, but also to illuminate just how much you love them. God, I pray today that they would open up their hearts. And if you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to re receive the life that he has to give, you want to experience the forgiveness of your sin and your guilt being removed, I just want to encourage you right now in the quietness of your heart to just say this prayer and mean it. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I invite you right now to shine your light 
on my heart. And that you would forgive me. That you would cleanse me. That you would come into my life. Come into my heart and make it your home. And from this day forward, I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name, amen.